Hello, it's Joker Men, the podcast about Bob Dylan albums. The podcast about Bob Dylan. <laughs> Bob Dylan, the artist and the divorcee. Uh, yeah, the eligible bachelor. Yes, uh, but potentially too eligible. I'm Evan, and my co-host is Ian. And today. We're going to talk about uh, an album that is kind of um, really where the rubber hits the road in terms of why we even started doing this podcast. Yes. This is an album that definitely was instrumental for me anyway, even wanting to do a project like this, um, because we're in open water now. Like this is, we sure are. This is Bob completely unmoored from the warm, fuzzy feelings that we all associate with the 60s and 70s. Um, even though, if you know anything about the 70s, it's not a warm, fuzzy time at all. Mm. We're still fully in the 70s, but uh, any of that lingering campfire glow of unity and togetherness from the 60s, uh, not only has it faded away in 1978, but it's... It's begun to uh, cast an ominous greenish hue onto the world. And uh, Bob, newly divorced, is traipsing out into the studio uh, in Santa Monica, California, about to make an album happen. To make it happen for better or worse, yeah. Uh, The album, as uh, the listeners are, are probably aware by now, having read the title of the episode, is Street Legal from 1978. There's, there's an. I was thinking about it. There's an argument to be made that really, like, we could have. Like, I, I'm glad we started this show when we did, right? Like, not, not like, like. I'm glad we started this show in Bob's chronology when we did, right? With, uh, with, with John Wesley Harding, because that was a good, good start there, and we we got to hit a couple classics up until now. But I think there, there is also, like you were saying. Um, the rubber meets the road today. There is an argument, I think, that we could have, we really could have begun this entire project with Street Legal, because this is this is really this is the birth of the or I don't know about birth, but the emergence of uh, of Bob Dylan, uh, unchained and in the wilderness and just just struggling struggling to make it all make sense for himself. Yes, that's that's a very good point that we could have just. Saved ourselves a lot of trouble and uh, not bothered with those albums that if you're a, if you're someone who identifies as a Bob fan, you have some feeling toward uh, everything we've already covered. You, you've right. heard of it. It's in the conversation for the top 10, the top 15 records. Um, a lot of that anyway is. And. So is a lot of stuff at the back half, more recently, that is, of Bob's right. career, his late period work. But where we are now, yes, uh, I think Street Legal is the the very edge of this cliff. Or actually, I guess <laughs> we've fallen off the cliff at this point. Yeah, we're off the Yeah, Desire was the edge of the cliff. We, yeah. are, we are off the cliff. We now. are off the cliff, and our vehicle is just taking on massive air. When it actually gets to the bottom of the valley below, I don't think we're there yet, but we have achieved liftoff 
and uh, there's no ground beneath us anymore. Um, what do we mean by that? Well, it's it's a weird record. Um, you can say that again. It's uncanny. Just look at the cover. <laughs> the cover of this album somehow looks cheap to me. Like it's always it, when I first discovered this record, I remember being in a record outlet. Mm-hmm, classic. Yeah, classic location on Thousand Oaks Boulevard. Mm. I had never seen this record before, and I I just kind of couldn't believe that this was the same person who who did all my favorites, you know, Blonde on Blonde, and and yet there's sort of like a weird mirror relationship between the these covers, these album covers of Blonde on Blonde and of Street Legal, where they both have what is kind of a nondescript photo of our hero on a street, but uh, with a different effect this time. There's stucco, he's wearing weird flared pants and a vest. It's outside Rundown Studios in Santa Monica on Main Street, which is no longer operational. The text on here that says Street Legal looks like it... First of all, what is that title? There really is a lot going on here in a, in a very confusing kind of way. As you have already mentioned, I think the outfit is definitely something that, that catches the eye first. The pants are, are, are just dog shit. And he's wearing some sort of strange, like, espadrille, sort of like uh, like wingtippy shoes, but without laces, as far as I can tell. It's, it's a little difficult to see. Uh, and then, yes, he's got the vest, and he's got he's holding a jacket, um, and just looking looking down the street. And I think the image and his, his appearance here really does set the tone for what's about to follow, which is, uh, this is, this is a divorced man, a profoundly divorced man. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we'll get into, we'll get into that some more when we actually talk about the songs and the lyrics. Uh, but, uh, but just right from the start, I think, I think we're setting a good, uh, a, a good template for what's about to follow. Uh, this is, this is not Bob in, uh, in, in Hailoha, in um, Woodstock, hanging out with the family and Sarah, and just in marital bliss. Uh, nor is it Bob, uh, you know, running down the streets of New York City, changing the world. This is, this is, this is Bob in Santa Monica. On his knees in Santa Monica, uh, hitting hitting the skids, uh, you know, for really the first time to 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 the degree that he is here. You know, he he has gone up and down. Uh, in his career up until this point, some some better years, some worse years, but here is where we really, as far as the critical appreciation of him is concerned, at least, here is where we really start 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 on that downward slope. The texture of life in America um, before this record, I think, maintained even when you were fucking up, even when you were making something that was pretty stupid. There's plenty of bands, endless bands. And, and artists and groups who are putting out completely forgettable records, which uh, in the 60s and the 70s, early 70s, a lot of those still retain a sort of charm because of their relative proximity to iconography and uh, a certain spirit that we associate positively with uh, the, the 60s, with the with the ideals of the of the 60s and the 
style like counterculture and the yes and and the style of the 70s like but at some point in the se- the 70s have this dark and spooky transition into the 1980s right yeah were i were i a smarter man i would find some way to tie street legal into the neoliberal turn of uh, of you know the american state around this time which which occurs really uh, you know, in the Ford administration into Carter, and then obviously hits hits turbocharge once we get to Reagan, uh, which is just eighteen months after street legal. Basically, um, I'm not that smart, so I, I don't know how to tie those two threads together. But I do think that there is there's something to be said just for the psychic energy that exists. You're right, like the psychic energy that exists within the within the country and the nation at this particular moment in time, and the kind of Bob record we get at this moment in time, which is as far away from the yeah the the warm and fuzzy good vibes of the late 60s early 70s um as you know as it possibly can be to borrow from smart people uh you could say this is a liminal space uh <laughs> and uh meaning it's a sort of an in-between zone an analogy you could use the most hideous point of the transformation is like right near the end but not quite or the middle you could say uh, whenever someone in a film turns into a werewolf, the thing that they are in the middle part between man and wolf man I see, I is, see where you're going is always the most disgusting and, right. and abhorrent. And right. uh, that's where we are in American culture and in Bob Dylan's musical career <laughs> and life uh, when we place the needle gingerly on the side A of street legal. Of street legal, yeah. I suppose before we uh, chat about the record itself and the songs, it makes sense just to talk a little bit about the the, the personal sort of strife that that was going on in Bob's uh, life at this particular moment in time. Because I think that the the record that has been produced is is uh, cannot be extricated from that that personal strife period. Um, so, I mean, as ever, we've done extensive research on sources that are not Wikipedia.com. Also, books. Uh, also, yeah, books, books, yeah. Uh, you know, we're we're learned, and uh, we really put a lot of look what I have uh, right here. Life, Bob Dylan. I have the Life magazine special, Bob Dylan. Uh, That's issue. one of those like twelve dollar magazines you buy at the checkout counter at grocery stores if you're like sixty five. Thirteen ninety nine. It was Christ. a gift. It was a gift. Uh, that's pretty good. Anyways, uh, street legal, and you can you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong or fill in where necessary. But oh, there's legal, there's nothing about street legal in this, which which says oh, a lot. Like, yeah, you know, I'm shocked. They glaze right over street legal. <laughs> you have you know beautiful pastoral shots of Bob and his family and Woodstock, and and then you have shots uh, of of Bob looking glam and fab in his full regalia, the Rolling Thunder review. The closest thing we get to the period in question is uh, a shot of Bob looking really, really haggard, <laughs> standing next to Jack Nicholson and Keith Richards, <laughs> and uh, one of him and Bono. Uh, there's a few. I mean, Bob, there's no dancing around it. He looked so bad during this period. During se- He was having a rough time. He looks, I mean, the, the eyeliner does not help. No, <laughs> he looks ethereally bad. Like he looks, 
shockingly like dog shit. Yeah, yeah, you have to wonder whether like it was it was something that he was actively attempting, like, you know, actively attempting to make himself look as shitty as possible or if this was just the this was just the the manifestation of what was going on within I, I think it's both and I think it's also forces that he probably doesn't recognize at the time uh, that are acting upon right. it. Just right. The clothes that he's wearing, the the fact of the eyeliner Anyway, I could go on for a while about how bad he looks in this era, but it's honestly kind of, it's impressive and it, uh, it, is. it adds to the, the vibe, which we must embrace to some degree because how else can you enjoy this record? That's all you can do is really just hop in, dive in head first and, and, you know, try to, try to keep your head above water. So this um, record, uh, I think it's an, an important thing to note is that it's really the first time that Bob has had like a home base studio uh, right? where he is able to work on songs for basically whenever he feels the mood, whenever the muse comes and visits, he can just hit the studio and he doesn't have to pay for time because he uh, bought it. Right. Yeah. He's not just heading into uh, Columbia records, you know, for a three day period of time booking, uh, you know, booking out a couple hours in the studio each day. He's got this this warehouse, basically, as far as I could tell from from what I read, that was converted into a studio space in Santa Monica, at uh, yeah, at Ocean and Main. Um, and he's brought in some Rolling Thunder vets, basically. Um, you know, I think he had a little bit of trouble assembling a band. Usually, in the past, it's always been. But, you know, after he kind of stopped working with the band, um, the band, um, you know, he kind of got in the habit of just calling up, dialing up whatever crew seemed to be in town that he was connected with. And they would come and cut tracks with him and that would be the record. And this time he, you know, he's out in Los Angeles, so he's not in New York in his home base area and has to kind of piece together his own group of musicians for this record. And so he calls up a couple Rolling Thunder vets, um, people who he wasn't necessarily even thrilled with, I think, as far as I could tell. Nor were they but, with him from right. what, <laughs> by all accounts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but people that he at least knew could, you know, keep time, I guess. So, so yeah, it was sort of a weird piecemeal approach to building the band, even though he does have this this nice studio space uh, to, to rely on. Um and then the other, you know, the other, the elephant in the room, so to speak, is uh, is is the marital strife that we've alluded to. Well, it, this yeah, it's uh, it's over between Bob and Sarah. It is. Uh, things have finally come to an end, and uh, and it's an important time in a man's life. Uh, this this directly after divorce, anybody's life, really, uh, but. You know, especially an artist, you can't help but wonder uh, what happens after a big break, a big breakup. Right. This record is chiefly interesting, at least to my degraded sensibilities, because it uh, occupies that spot. This is the one that came after what was a a beautiful love story uh, to a point. Yeah, if you've if you are following chronologically, right in the in the Bob Dylan studio album situation uh, or you know series, uh, the the very last song that you've heard 
before you drop the needle in the first set of street legal is Sarah from Desire, right? Which is the yeah. the intensely uh, personal, beautiful ballad meant to win her back and and reinforce the relationship that they had built. And now the ve- the very next song that we have in terms of um, uh, chronology, you know, if we if we skip over Hard Rain, is uh, is a song that is. Uh, is a little different than than Sarah. Um, it's changing the, of the guards. It's changing of the guards. The first song on side A of Street Legal. Yes. This song is one of the highlights of this record. Um, yes, and it is so weird how it <laughs> it begins with a a fade in. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is strange. Um, and th- this, this song is kind of, uh, one of those Bob songs, one of those types of Bob songs. That's like a grab bag of disjointed symbolic signifiers uh, that just kind of add up to some kind of narrative. Uh, it's got great imagery all scattered through it uh it's no desolation row but it's trying to be something like that i think maybe uh i'm i'm actually yeah i mean i'm i'm pretty impressed with this song to be honest i think that it's uh, it's a, it's a great start to the record and um yeah lyrically i i think that it is in it's in, it's in the vein of, of what we get with something like Desolation Row, right? Or I, I don't think it's even terribly dissimilar from like Tangled Up in Blue, which has a more clearly um, explicated like narrative between, you know, the, the two the two characters in there. I, I um, agree but, you know, with you, but I think Tangled Up in Blue more or less takes place in a world the that real we recognize. World. <laughs> and right, right, this right. is like Tangled Up in Blue if it took place in a Grimm's fairy tale or, or Shakespearean <laughs> sonnet or something. Right. Yeah. I see what you mean. And, and I, I think he would go on to, you know, kind of, uh, practice this, this songwriting kind of, um, style in the future. I think, I think the song actually bears a, a somewhat decent resemblance to our, our namesake, namesake song. Joker, Joker man. man. Yes. I mean, when Bob does that, that mode of songwriting, even when it's not the best uh, version of that. And I would not say that the changing of the guards is the best version of that. Uh, even so, I think anytime he attempts one of these, we it's a nameless thing, what, the, what this is called, whatever mm. this type of song is. I think it's like a reason to get excited and a reason to get up in the morning. And the fact that he, it's still possible he'll do another one. Even if he was just pulling things out of a hat, which we have reason to believe based on certain anecdotes, that's how he, he does things. He actually just like <laughs> writes shit down on scraps of paper and pulls them out and pieces the lyrics together. Um, even so, it can lead to some of the most beautiful lyrical moments and sort of cinematic moments in, in songwriting that you can ever hope to, to have. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I, I think really the, the, the song that 
started this whole style uh, in his in his discography for for me at least is uh, you know Tambourine Man. I I think um, I totally agree. It's uh, yeah, it's it's there there is some sort of narrative that that is being related here, but what it is is hard to tell, and it doesn't really even matter. It's more just kind of about the the overall feeling that is affected by these very vivid images piling up one on top of the other. Tambourine Man, I think, actually achieves like. Uh, something of articulating something about like a sublime ecstatic experience this song is a stab toward that yeah but it was really interesting for me to read the stats of this record on bobdylan.com our favorite website this song's fucking never played Live. Yeah, 68 times. I'm looking at it right now between July 78 and December 78. Some of the songs on this have straight up never been played. And some of them have practically never been played. Like they were played around this time and then never again. But probably more songs than not were just never played live. Which maybe says something about the how at least how Bob feels about this or has historically felt about these songs right yeah i think i think that that speaks to several different things i mean one obviously this this record coming out of his divorce and him being in this pretty ugly state of mind at this time some source somewhere mentioned that uh, that sarah alleged in in the divorce lawsuit that bob had struck her at one point and whether or not that's actually true we don't know the records are sealed um, and, uh, and, and probably will remain so for, uh, for the rest of their lives at least. But, um, I mean, it's clearly was just a very ugly, uh, uh, poisonous kind of period in both of their lives. And so it makes sense that Bob would want to move past and move beyond, I think, what, whatever was happening in his life. And, and these songs are really what, what came out of, of that period of time. This is what represents his state of mind during, during this this really you know fucked up period of time for him. So, do you think that this represents an attempt to process those emotions, or do you think it's more of a retreat uh, from reality? Like after a breakup, somebody might post a lot more on on their Instagram of of se- selfies, yeah. yes, of self portrait yes. style photos. Just to make 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 sure that uh, the ex knows they're well, doing fine. To do that, but also to say, "Hey, everyone else, I'm I'm back on the market." Like ad- right, advertising yourself. So I wonder, like, if Bob's version of that is uh, taking a, a stab at making another epic, poetic uh, story song. With with the with, with changing of the guards, which, on the other hand, I think can be read as a sort of processing of those feelings that might have been happening for him, where the song title "Changing of the Guards," you know, it, it seems to reference a uh, a shift, a a sea change, as Beck famous breakup record "Sea Change." <laughs> yes. um, Changing of the guards is is also like that, where you've got a uh, a a change in the power play of the world, and and this song, if you you can sort of follow a a narrative uh, from it, seems to imply a character who 
is in the midst of some kind of great upheaval or at the center of it. Yeah, absolutely. And a woman is involved. Yes, a woman is involved. She wakes him up. Gentlemen, he said there is some sort of relationship between a man and a woman as far as we can tell, but it's unclear what exactly is going on there. Uh, it is notable, I think, that he, he starts it off 16 years, right? 16 years since 1977, 78, depending on whether we're talking about when the song was written or released, uh, dates back to 61, 62, right? So, uh, you know, 16 years sounds mighty close to the length of Bob's career at this uh, at this It kind of does, time. doesn't it? Um, it does. But besides the lyrics, I think it it also uh, interesting to me, or you know, the, what what jumps out to me just as much as the lyrics is the is the sonic template here. And I know we haven't really talked yeah. um, too much about the actual sound of these records in the past, in large part because Bob doesn't really give a shit or hasn't really given a shit up until this point. But that's that's one of the major changes with Street Legal, right? Is this is this is a studio record. Well, uh, if by that you mean that there's a fucking tenor saxophone, then yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's the tenor sax, and there are uh, several different guitar players throughout with several different guitar tones. Uh, there are the the uh, backing vocal, the female Which backing are, vocals you, that are really, really awful, really kind of. They, they're very bad. Well, well, well I, I think they work work in some places. I don't mean that the singers um, are awful as much as I feel like the the effort that went into getting the right take is awful. <laughs> but but that's also right. part of the charm. Like honestly, I, I think that's something I I. I don't think the record, uh, it just wouldn't be the same without those, those singers trying to keep up with Bob and like, remember what you're, right. what, what they're supposed to be singing and the harmonies. Um, there is something to it that's charming, but, uh, the thing that yeah. strikes me about the, the song sonically is the, the tenor sax, because when I was little, I, my parents played Kenny G for me to go to sleep. And um, so I have some kind of like visceral, uh, deep emotional response to the tenor sax. And um, it's not necessarily positive. It's just weird. (laughs) Yeah. I can, I can see that being a little, um, a little strange uh, to hear in this context. I, I, I get big, sort of this this song less so that you know there are a couple other tracks that we'll talk about later that where it pops up more but i i do get the sense that bob is trying to pull from the van morrison playbook on ah, this record interesting. Um, with that with that that sax sound and with the big kind of um you know fat blown out band you know full full studio spectrum yeah, kind that of didn't thing. even occur to me um, I, I totally see that yeah, a couple a couple of the tracks really like the um uh, you know like um no time to think for instance like just the 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 soprano sax that's on that is uh, really sounds straight out of something from like Moon Dance or something uh, to my ear at least um so uh so yeah I mean I I, I don't know I I think that I think that the sound there there is a distinct and clear street legal sound right uh, that that hasn't existed on a Bob Dylan recorded album up until this point and it doesn't really exist after this um, you know there is an element of of some of these uh, so, uh, sonic signatures on the Christian records and and stuff that we get to in the future but this is sort of a one off in in the discography and in the career. And I, I think the main thing with Changing of the Guards for me is like it, it proves that this sound or this sonic template can work. 
if there is if there is some strong material behind it. I I, I think that the song I actually really lo- really love the song, um, even though it's uh, it's a little a little opaque and um, and not quite uh, doesn't quite reach the towering heights of something like Tambourine Man or or Joker Man. But you know, the, the first song on the record, it, it's like a proof of concept for me here. Like it, it proves that the the direction he was headed in his mind on Street Legal could you know could ultimately have worked, can work um, again, depending on the on the quality of the material that that it's being applied to. Yeah, and and to me, I mean, I, while I I agree that it's a great song, um, yeah, I would say great. I'm comfortable saying it's a great Bob Dylan song. Um, all right. it, it also brings uh, into focus the weirdness of the record, which, if I could summarize it, is that this record is called Street Legal, and it has that cover, but the first song is like this sax-laden, medieval-themed, <laughs> poetic journey can you can you remind me just off the top of your head? Because I'm failing to uh, come up with it in my mind. What what is Lou doing around this time in his career? Right? Is it is it like Street Hassle era? Seventy eight is is actually also a kind of really fucked up period for for Lou Reed, where, where Take No Prisoners comes out, the uh, live album, Take no where Prisoners. he is totally out of pocket <laughs> the entire time. Yes. And Street Hassle also comes out in 78. Um, so okay, yeah, yeah. I really think of these two as being... You have Street Hassle and Street Legal. I mean, there this, there there's go. something in the water uh, in in New York and Santa Monica. I get... <laughs> something about something streets. Something about streets. And, and they both have, like, kind of... I guess abject is the way I would describe both of those records. Both of these records. Mm. To some degree... Uh, Bob probably it feels less intentional. It just is kind of abject. Uh, where where Lou I think is absolutely playing in the mud at this point. He's he knows it's right. abject he's, and he's he's yeah he, he's yucking it up like writing some of his best and also most kind of perverse material. Um, yeah. The so- first song on on uh, Street Hassle, "Give Me Some Good Times," is one of my favorite Lou Reed songs of all time, where he shits all over uh, Sweet Jane and just does this like nightmare <laughs> goblin parody of it. Uh, it it's amazing, um, and yeah. this record. For Bob, I don't think Bob really realizes it, but he's also making a sort of nightmare goblin parody of his own career. Right, but he isn't. I think that's the key, right? Is he? Is he, he, does he doesn't not realize know it. it no. or, or he's not aware of it in the way that that Lou. Perhaps is. he knows um, that now, it, looking back, that this was. It was like that, but that's that's a if you want like a great album double feature. It's one of these nights, dear listener, listen to both Street Hassle and Street Legal. Get up in those, up in these streets. Street Hassle is is the better record. I I would agree. <laughs> I would but agree. this one is arguably just as fascinating for different reasons. 
Yeah, I think might might be even more interesting um, than than Street Hassle, just because it's sort of a failed record, uh, and I think there's always something more, or uh, like a more failed record. Not that Street Hassle is necessarily the most successful, quote unquote, Lou Reed record that's ever. It's been got its cut. own issues. When yeah. we do the loop, the Lou cast, we'll we'll get, we'll get into it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think that you know that, that failed records are always a little more interesting than successful records. Um, failed records by, by, you know, generational talents that is, um, and, and Bob obviously falls into that category and, and street legal falls into, into the failed record category, I think in large part because of songs like the second song on the record. New pony. Yeah. This song is not quite as, uh, Baroque and beautiful as, as changing of the guards, I would say. No, I mean, it's as beautiful. I won't even say that. I, I mean, there were probably more beautiful songs about fucking a horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I don't, I don't know about this one. This, this is, this is the failed aspect of Street Legal, I think. Um, the, well, it's been this, played zero times. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that he's, he's aware of it. Um, as far as I can tell, I mean, it seems like a song about about Sarah you know he he does have his new pony right but he once had a pony her name was Lucifer Lucifer and he had to shoot her and (laughs) he swear it hurt him more than it could have hurted her it could Uh, ever have hurted her yeah and and so not only is he like using this song to kind of brag if we're gonna just follow this thread assuming this is the right way to interpret he's bragging that he's got a new pony and he's you miss X. Well, he says sometimes he wonders what's going on with Miss X. He's, right. So he says sometimes I think about the old pony, perhaps. But uh, he's also using this opportunity to say I had to break it off. He's claiming responsibility that I ended things, not her. Yeah. And uh, when only one of you in the marriage is making records that millions will listen to and purchase. Um, that's a that's a sort of power move uh, to say the least to yeah, yeah. be dictating this narrative even if you're filtering it through an equestrian lens <laughs> it's it's definitely a sort of uh the lady doth protest too much sort of thing uh, the lady being bob here uh, yeah <laughs> pro- protesting about how great his new pony is uh, you know a, l- a little too much she got great big hind legs <laughs> and long black shaggy hair above her face yeah, he really wants to make love to this horse. Um, the last thing I'll say about this song is that the refrain that goes through it is the backup singers going, how much longer? How much and longer, yes. That is what you find yourself thinking as you listen to this song. <laughs> it, it is, um, yeah, it's, it's, this, this might be the low point of Street Legal, I would say. Maybe, maybe the high point with Changing of the Guards and then right into the low point, yeah. um, depending on how you look at it. It, the answer uh, to how much longer is uh, four minutes and uh, twenty nine seconds, assuming you're one second into the song. Yeah, yeah. Too when you want to change it. <laughs> too long. Um, it uh, it's the sort of the, there. There's a couple songs I think that fall into this like broader category on this record, but this is the most egregious example of it, which is just this like sort of um, like macho bullshit swaggering kind of like guitar solo song uh there, there's just this this really like like uh 
uh, Bush League guitar solo two thirds of the way through this song that doesn't really add anything to it whatsoever except for you know forty five additional seconds on the runtime, and you're just waiting, you're just you're just waiting for it to be over. How um, much longer? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the this this machismo swaggering asshole tough talking it doesn't uh, suit you know, him. Yeah, it's it's not it's not the vibe for Bob. I gotta say. Um, and there's there's a couple other songs I think that fit into that rubric later on the record but this is the most like i said the the worst example of it and it's uh it's the worst song on the record as far as i'm concerned let's move on gladly song three the first (laughs) the first appearance of the word socialism in a bob dylan song yeah this song is um called no time to think and it is okay I, res- just, I I think that this song, it's attempting uh, a little lazily to include... It's basically the closest Bob ever gets to We Didn't Start the Fire. Maybe uh, you could make the argument that uh, Murder Most Foul is actually the closest he gets to We Didn't Start the Fire, but... Um, I see that. Prior but Murder to Most that, Foul is good. That's that's right. That's the crucial <laughs> difference. Is a uh, no time to think is a song that uh, attempts profundity by including, by name dropping everything that exists. It really does. It really does kind of sound like a, a song. Some of the lyrics sound like they would have been written by a seventeen-year-old who has who has just read about uh, Marx for the first time, for instance, and um, you know, uh, capitalism or something. I'll and, do you uh, one better or worse. I, I think it sounds like it could have been done by a twenty-five-year-old okay. who is a grad student, right? Right, and is and is attempting to like cram their thesis into four minutes or whatever right of lyrical song right socialism hypnotism hypnotism it's the so here like the the song from a sonic level again to, to kind of go back to the way that it sounds it's, it's, I think, sorry I'm, it's funny to me to, to even talk about <laughs> Bob Dylan's songs on a sonic level well but that's the thing with Street Legal right is like like there is more sonically going on here than there has been on previous records no, no, it isn't it's, necessarily it's, good it's not even that it's like inaccurate to use that term it's just like sometimes you'll hear people use the term sonic you know in terms of speaking about the sonics of like Stuff like Aphex Twin, and then, and then when you just talk about the sonics right. of of a song like like this, no, uh, no time to think. It just kind of it, it's funny to me. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it it does uh, doesn't necessarily warrant the same level of of discussion that like a latter day Steely Dan record does or something. This isn't exactly Gaucho. But uh, but there is more there is more going on here than than there has been up until this point and so so like like with with changing of the guards I think which which I mentioned was like this sort of like this sonic template uh, for the record like you know here's here's what I'm attempting with these backing vocals and these horns and this big blown out studio production kind of thing I think this song works on that level um, I, I actually really love when he is. Uh, harmonizing with the with the backing vocals on those you know those those words socialism and things like that uh not not paying attention to the words themselves necessarily but just the the overall kind of affective 
feeling, it works from that from that level. Like I really do get sort of chilled down my spine kind of feeling from from hearing Bob and and the backing vocals all really like holler and shout with these with these words. And if they if they meant something, if they were like if they were uh, interesting or original or insightful in any way, I think that this song could really kick ass. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's sort of where it, where it, where it falls flat on its face is it's just, it, it sounds like a dumb guy trying to do an impression of Bob Dylan and, uh, you know, and, and failing, failing pretty miserably. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, this song actually, it works for me overall. Um, like I listen to it and if I'm not really listening that closely, I just think it's kind of, uh another song on, on this album, uh, following, you know, ignoring new pony, just thinking about the first track. You should just eliminate new pony. You should turn it into glue and, uh, just go from track one to track three. Um, it's, it sounds great. You've got that cascading, uh, again, the tenor sax. Right, that's that's the Van Morrison thing to me. Van Morrison. Uh, it was recently his birthday, by the way. Yes, happy birthday. 75 years happy young. Happy birthday, Van Morrison. Miserable man. Have you ever um, have you but, ever heard the Van Morrison cover of uh, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue? No, but I'm going to listen to that as yeah. hell. I love, I mean, I love Van Morrison without like... As much as anybody does, you know, I don't like, I don't even know anybody who listens to like Van Morrison deep cut records. Like, I don't know anyone who knows what Van Morrison has been up to for the last 30, <laughs> 40, 50 years. But everybody loves Van Morrison, kind of, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's a pretty like universally um, um, beloved kind of figure um i don't know yeah i don't know that there are there are uh, as many van morrison fan podcasts as there are uh, bob fan podcasts no. i mean that's the, i i would be intimidated by like a van morrison fan pod because those people i feel just are like way more serious they have like way more skin in the game like than we do well i think that's um, the case for most bob fans as well but i i know what you mean uh, i think we can move on. Uh, no time to think. Like it's kind of good. Yeah, if uh, if if you're looking for a song that is sounds good but is dumb, uh, this is this if is you're your a song. Sa- if you're a sapiosexual, <laughs> if you're turned on by <laughs> the human by intelligence, mind, yes, yeah, then uh, this song, which mentions every ism uh, that you could think of in twenty minutes, is. Uh, going to make you hot and bothered for song four which uh is coming up and is called baby comma stop crying that comma is uh is important the first single from the record i think uh, as far as i could tell actually this was this we haven't even talked about singles like this whole time we yeah i mean it's sort of it's it's sort of hard to to talk about them in in any great depth because that concept is so just foreign to the way that we listen to music at this point. But, but I, I, I do yeah, agree. Yes and no. But well, from now on, we'll, we'll, we should really talk about which were the right. singles. 
this was uh, yeah. So this was this was the song that Bob and the record com- and Columbia decided to push uh, was with with the first kind of go at street legal, and I can I can I can see why that would be right. Um, is it, it's sort of a, a mid tempo kind of song, pretty pleasant, uh, sort of low stakes, um, and uh, you know about as tender as he's likely to get on this record, which is in large part not particularly tender. See. Uh, new pony for instance new pony is as tender as horse meat <laughs> that's that's a good point yeah so I, I, I see what you see see what you did yeah i i agree that this song is uh it's it's very simple i mean there's no two bones about it no one bone even it's very simple it's a song that is uh almost absurdly simple like lyrically i don't know that he's gotten simpler he wants Baby, please stop he wants crying. Me to stop crying. Stop crying. It's you know this is the forebearer to Jesus. Don't cry by Wilco. <laughs> um, Jesus, stop crying. Um, you know, I know the sun will always shine. So, baby, please stop crying. Stop crying because you're tearing up my mind. Yeah. Um, and this speaks to the the feeling that we all have when someone cries, where we you want to say. Stop. Crying. Yes, the the universally known feeling when you would wish the person who's by you who is crying would would stop because it's making you uncomfortable, <laughs> and you don't want you don't want to do emotional labor for them. It's a good song. Yeah, I think I think it's really nice. It's good, and the thing that hangs over this whole record to some extent is wondering what might have been. There's a million ways to do these songs. All of them could have been executed so differently. Um, if if Daniel Lanois had somehow been in the picture here, very different record. Uh, Can't imagine what he done with uh, what he would have done with New Pony. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's so much that could have been done with uh, every song except that, and. Um, <laughs> The, but what we have is, you know, uh, last episode, uh, Brian Diodario said, you get what you get and you can't be upset. And I think that's really, um, it applies to this uh, album because you don't even get live versions of most of these. This is it. And uh, you don't be upset. That's true. Yeah, it's, um, you know, for better or worse, this is what Bob has... Uh, Bob has given us circa 1978, and there there isn't yeah there isn't any sort of really like basement uh, or excuse me not basement bootleg series uh, released from this era like they they've gotten I guess I don't know if they've gotten much further than like the Christian era at this point but I know there is like the Christian era live live recordings and stuff that that are from a couple years ago. There's a um, bootleg uh, from that yeah it's called Trouble yeah. No More. It's Trouble No More. That's right. It's great, and we'll we'll get into that uh, soon. Yeah. But this, yeah, this period of time has been like, there isn't a whole lot of, there isn't a whole lot of shit in the archives as far as I can tell. Um, You know, there's there's plenty of stuff. Official stuff. Uh, And I was listening to some of it today, actually, the rehearsal tapes from 77, 78. And then you do have quite a few bootlegs of performances from 78 from the world tour, um, including Budokan. Well, of course, we have Budokan, which will be our next episode, but one that uh, Brian D'Addario hipped me to 
which I did not know about. The, the video is called Bob Dylan Tangled Up in Blue, live from 78, unique version. <laughs> it's very unique in that it straight up sounds like Bob is doing a Zevon impression. Really? You'll have to send that to me. That sounds uh, extremely like my shit. That's the end of side A. That's the end of side A. Yeah. Just four. All right. Well, please continue on with us next time where we get into side B of street legal. Uh, This is truly, sincerely, the beginning of the rest of our lives as a podcast. Yes. This This is the moment we've all been working up towards this entire time. It's all downhill, uphill. I mean, from here. <laughs> some ups and some downs. But it'll be, it, it will never not be interesting. That's right. Jokerman. Jokerman.